A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? You? A billion. Now that we escape, sleep, walk, awake. Those who can relate know the world ain't cake. Market topping records, this is real, not fake. Not AI generated, not a typo or mistake. Ask LL, he ain't got nobody by Jake. He's from around the way, dropping bars like Drake from up north, whipping batter into cake. Add the flour, crumble butter, watch it rise, taking shape. GDP looking better, we just might escape. That recession that's been coiled in the corner like a snake. Ready to strike if prices were made inflated. Did you see PCE? Inflation's really abated. And stocks keep rising, but not every sector in size. It's a rally for the the giants don't be surprised every trend is unique that's why we need finesse let's get it all together on the investopedia express welcome back and welcome aboard That's right, Sly. Higher highs, and they keep coming. The S&P 500 topped another all-time high last week before trading slightly lower on Friday. Prior to that, though, the index hit five new tops in a row, and we haven't seen that kind of streak since November of 2021. They come in batches. Solid economic news added some tailwind as fourth quarter GDP numbers came in stronger than expected, clocking 3.3% as consumers kept on spending. That was lower than the blistering 4.9% pace set in the third quarter, but a lot higher than the 2% forecast. And inflation kept on cooling with a personal consumption expenditures index dropping to 2.9% for December. That's the first time we've seen a 2% handle on the Fed's preferred measure of inflation in a few years. Looking at core PCE, which strips out those pesky food and energy prices, it's now at a 2% annualized rate on a three and six month basis. That's the Fed's target rate, fellow passengers. We've arrived at our inflation destination. While inflation may be cooling, consumer spending is not. Consumer spending rose 0.7% in December, while personal income growth actually fell 0.3%, and we've been dipping into our savings to keep on spending. The personal savings rate fell to 3.7% for the month, down from 4.1% in November, and way down from the 22% rate it hit in the spring of 2020 when we were on lockdown and the government was sending out checks. We are overspending, there's nothing new about that, but with the economy still growing, unemployment still under 4%, and inflation in the 2% zone, the economy could be normalizing, and investors like normal, especially when the market is making new all-time highs on the daily. On the daily. Merci, Wyclef. Fuji's pour toujours. As January comes to a close, that was quick, we can't ignore the January barometer, especially when the stock market clocks a 2% plus return in the first month of the year. According to the mighty Ryan Dietrich of the Carson Group, when the S&P 500 rises 2% or more in January, it's higher for the rest of the year 84% of the time and not more than 12% on average. Good years tend to follow great years. No guarantees in investing, but that's a pretty good average. And after a terrible start to the year, which was really a retracement after a nine-week run, investors are back to buying stocks, especially their favorite big stocks, at least most of them. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one, they might be giants. No, they are giants. Microsoft hit the $3 trillion market cap peak last week, joining Apple as the only companies to get to that size. Mr. Softy, as we used to call it, has been riding high on its AI ambitions, and the most widely held stock in the world has been scooping profits by the bucket for its investors. Shares are up 7.5% in January and up 63% in the past year. That's double Apple's return over the past year in case you're keeping score. Back to the giants, trillion dollar market caps are kind of normal right now. There are now six mega caps sporting valuations of $1 trillion or more. 
Apple and Microsoft, of course, but also Amazon, NVIDIA, Alphabet, and Meta. Meta, aka Facebook, aka The Facebook, has had an incredible renaissance. After crashing around 70% in the bear market of 2022 to a market cap of just $235 billion, shares have rebounded 326%. Which leads us to number two. While all these tech giants are making all-time highs, they keep cutting their workforces. We brought it up a couple of weeks ago, and it's only gotten worse since then. Just last week, tech layoffs more than doubled to around 24,000, according to layoffs.fyi. Microsoft cut 1,900 jobs at its gaming division as it digests the acquisition of Activision, SAP laid off 8,000 workers, eBay cut 1,000 positions, and Amazon slashed hundreds of positions in its Prime Video and Audible units. The message from the executive suites are clear. These companies need to right-size to be more nimble and to clear the way for more spending on AI. That's where the productivity and the profit margins are, and if you look at these trillion-dollar market cappers, they're all leaning heavily into their AI futures. And number three. Edison, we have a problem, an electricity problem, actually an electric vehicle problem. EV sales are slowing and their stocks are spiraling. Shares of Tesla have fallen 26% in January, wiping out more than $200 billion worth of market capitalization for Elon Musk's company. The stock fell 12% this last Thursday after Tesla reported fourth quarter earnings Wednesday that missed analyst estimates and it forecast a lower growth for 2024. Musk and co. are focused on developing its next generation vehicle set to launch in 2025. That is rumored to be a mass market vehicle codenamed Redwood, but investors may have lost patience with Tesla and its competitors. Shares of Tesla and other EV makers are deep, deep in bear market territory, way off their all-time highs. BYD, Warren Buffett's favorite Chinese EV maker, is down 40%. Tesla, down 55%. Li Auto, down 41%. Polestar, 84%. Neo, 91%. And Rivian, down 92%. That ride was fun while it lasted, but with EV makers losing their charge, brace for bankruptcies and buyouts. Let's get set up for another busy week ahead, and it's all about corporate earnings and the Fed. The market has been very clear on earnings. Miss your numbers and watch your head. Shares of Intel were blistered last week when the chipmaker missed forecast. Same thing for Tesla. But if you surprise to the upside, enjoy the ride. Just ask Netflix about that. So far for the fourth quarter of 2023, according to FactSet, 25% of companies have reported and 69% of those companies have reported a positive earnings per share surprise and 68% have reported a positive revenue surprise. This week, we're going to hear from the giants. We'll get results from Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, and AMD to name just a few. We'll also get results from Boeing with an update on its Air Max 9 issues and progress on the Air Max 10s. And the Federal Reserve is going to meet on interest rates this week with the announcement due at 2 p.m. Eastern Time this Wednesday. No rate changes are expected. We know that. But we're going to be listening closely to Fed Chair Powell's commentary on future rate cuts. Remember, the Fed has signaled at least three rate cuts this year, but the timing and the magnitude of those cuts is what's important. Right now, according to the CME's FedWatch tool, there's a 46% chance the Fed cuts rate a quarter of a point at the March 20th meeting and a 51% chance it cuts rates a quarter point at the May 1st meeting. Does the recent dip in core PCE to bring it around 2% actually change that calculus? We also want to hear about revisions to the 2023 economic data. Was the job market as hot as we thought it was? Speaking of the jobs market, we're going to get an update on the labor market this Friday with the release of the January non-farm payrolls report, the jobs report. Right now, economists are expecting around 170,000 job gains for the month, but they have been widely wrong for a long time. It's been harder and harder to accurately pinpoint the number of job gains in this dynamic economy. Job gains have been slowing given the past three-month average, but they're still pretty robust. 
The IPO market, though, is still fast asleep. Amherst Sports is trying to wake it up. You likely haven't heard of Amherst Sports, but you know the brands. The Finland-based company owns Arcteryx, Solomon, Wilson, Atomic, Louisville Slugger, and Peak Performance, among others. It's trying to sell 100 million shares this week for between $16 to $18 per share, giving it a market cap of $10 billion. Who wants to play? Today's investor is locked into the day-to-day, minute-to-minute ticks of the market. We can't help it. We're bombarded with stock tickers everywhere we look. Business television is playing in our gyms, our bars, our offices and airports, and the financial media, present company included, is always talking about what just happened or what's going to happen next. But what if we looked at the markets in the economy in terms of cycles? I'm talking about long-term cycles that last several decades or more. They're called super cycles, and whether we notice them or not at the time, they have profound implications on our returns and our behavior. Peter Oppenheimer is the chief equity global strategist and head of macro research at Goldman Sachs in Europe, and he has made a career of looking at these super cycles. He's out with a new book to share his decades of experience and his knowledge. It's called Any Happy Returns, Structural Changes and Super Cycles in Markets, and he is our special guest this week on The Express. Welcome. Thank you so much, Caleb. Great to be with you. Congrats on the book. It's incredibly well-researched and well-written, no surprise there, and it's a financial educator's paradise. It's perfect for us in Investopedia. I want to talk about the modern cycles you described, the cycle that lasted from 1982 to 2020, which you call the modern cycle, and then the postmodern cycle, the one we're in now. Talk to us about what that modern cycle was that ended a few years back before the pandemic or right when the pandemic began. Absolutely. Well, by way of background, actually taking history back further, there's been a number of these structural shifts that we've seen that have created sometimes very long periods of very high returns for investors and sometimes periods where they've been much lower and more volatile. And there's some specific factors that drive these. Uh, we had a, a long expansion just after the Second World War through to the late 1960s, driven by post-war reconstruction and the building of global trade and uh, technological innovation and a baby boom. And then from the late 60s through to the early 1980s, we had that long period of recessions and inflation and falling uh, global trade and rising global geopolitical tensions. But the period from 1982 through to the end of the century was an extraordinarily stable period of economic expansion and very high returns for investors. And Really, the issue, I suppose, is what triggered that. The first and most important factor, of course, was that it started with the peak of global inflation and interest rates in the early 1980s. And from that point on, we saw this very consistent, stable decline in interest rates all the way through the next two, three decades. And that really helped the cost of capital to come down and investors to see higher returns and higher valuations and assets. But it was a period also when uh, you saw very significant economic supply-side reforms, deregulation, privatization, tax reforms, and so on, which helped company profits to rise. And coupled with that, we saw the collapse of geopolitical tensions from the late 1980s with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Empire, which heralded a period of global cooperation and indeed globalization, which was supported also by big trade deals and India joining the WTO in the mid-90s and eventually China in 2001. It really ended with the tech bubble in 2000, but overall an extraordinary period 
of returns. I think what we have to reflect on is that in the period that followed that financial crisis, the pandemic, and the period that we saw that got interest rates down to an all-time record low through 2020 and 2021, we're now really entering a new secular phase, I think, when some of these conditions are really changing. Uh, Although we're expecting interest rates to come down this year as inflation moderates, you know, we're not really going to get kind of a structural decline in interest rates over the next decades, as we saw in that period after the 1980s. And the cost of capital is likely to be higher. So we go from this period of like uh, a lot of help from monetary policy, obviously. We had some booms and busts, but always sort of bailed out by either Treasury or the Federal Reserve or central banks flooring interest rates, right? Really putting the wind at the sails of corporate profits. It's really been a shareholder's bonanza in that modern cycle. Talk to me about the difference between cycles and structural changes, because these are a big deal. Well, absolutely. You you said exactly the right point there. We're going into a new cycle. This year, most economists are now expecting a soft landing with inflation and interest rates coming down, really the reverse of what we saw in the last couple of years. That's the cycle, and equity markets have moved to reflect that with a very strong rally at the end of last year. But the secular changes are becoming much more complex. We're not likely to see interest rates trending downwards consistently over the next few years. That's a very unlikely prospect. So that means a higher cost of capital than perhaps we've been used to. But I think we can all recognize as well that uh, we're seeing a shift from globalization to more regionalization, being driven by technology, by decarbonization, and also geopolitics and higher protectionism. You know, labor markets are tighter now, so are commodity markets. That means higher costs. And the other big shift, of course, is that we're moving into a period where government deficits, government borrowing is consistently rising. And we're entering a period of an aging populations in many of the developed countries, including China. So I think all of these long-term structural factors are really going to shape the kind of environment we have as investors, not just in the next year, but over the next decade or so. Yeah, these are what you characterize as, as going to be what sort of defines the postmodern cycle, the one we're living in today, characterized by all these themes. You mentioned them, and folks will link to, uh, to Peter's uh, book in the show notes here, A Rise in the Cost of Capital, A Slowdown in Trend Growth, that shift you just mentioned from globalization to regionalization, a rise in the cost of labor and commodities. We've seen a lot of these things play out in the last few years. Wages are finally up after a while. This shift, again, from regionalization, right, as we get more and more trouble all over the world. Which of these do you think is going to have the most profound impact, or are they all sort of equally weighted in the way they're going to shift our economy going over the next few decades? Well, I think it's the real the combination of having higher, not very high, but higher interest rates and the cost of capital, together with a less globalized world, are probably going to have the biggest shift. And I think what it really means is that investors should not really rely on rising valuations as being the main driver of returns. It probably means lower returns, but still lots of opportunities. And I think the two defining differences of this super cycle, this postmodern cycle, which makes it very different from the ones we've seen in the past, are the combination of two major shocks that are going to impact the global economy while all these changes are taking place. You know, one of them, which has got a lot of attention this year, is 
AI and the impacts of that on, on jobs and growth and productivity. And the other one is decarbonization. And these are, are huge potential changes, but rather different in nature. AI is all about technology and the virtual world, whereas decarbonization is very much about the physical world, really reconstructing the infrastructure of our energy systems. And both of these will actually create very good opportunities, I think, for investors in this postmodern cycle. Totally fascinating. I want to get your, your a deeper take on how you think AI is going to impact labor forces and productivity. A lot of people obviously think the robots are coming for our jobs. That's not what AI is. AI is a completely different way of taking all of this data and all this information we generate to help make us more productive. But how do you see from a macroeconomics perspective, it playing out across the labor force uh, from the highly skilled to the less skilled workforce? Well, I think in many ways, it is coming at a pretty good time, because the one thing that's quite interesting about the cycle that we're in is that in most big economies around the world, unemployment is very low, labor markets are very tight, and that's partly reflecting aging populations. So if we can use new technologies as a tool, improve productivity and provide help where we can't get physical support from people, that, that could be very useful. Look, we do think that jobs will be disrupted by this new technology, but that's been true forever when we look at technological changes and people worried about that with the internet. And indeed, the internet was a huge shift in technology, a real step change, but it created ultimately all kinds of new businesses and services, app-based businesses, social media, and so on, which resulted actually in the labor market becoming very tight as we're seeing today. And I think that could happen as well. So we certainly think jobs will be disrupted, but new jobs will come along. And our estimate is that productivity, this all elusive gain in, in the, the quality of outputs, which we haven't really seen for a long time, is likely to improve as a result of AI, maybe by about one and a half percent a year over the next decade. And that could really help uh, to support real income growth and therefore consumers over the medium to long term. You also mentioned changing demographics. And while for a long time, the population kept expanding and expanding, especially in developed economies, it's not necessarily going to be the case going forward. How do you see the demographics of the planet changing? Well, it's changing very radically because all of the rich economies, uh, to varying degrees, are seeing slowing demographics, so aging populations. And that's a combination of lower birth rates, but people living longer, which of course is a good thing. What's interesting is this is now being supported also by China, which is the second biggest economy in the world, with a huge population, roughly 1.4 billion people, but again, a slowing population. Uh, what it means, I think, is many things, but probably the most important impact will be greater demands on governments to borrow money to support aging populations, and also more emphasis on things like technology to provide output and services which can't be fulfilled by people. So it's a combination of these factors that I think is going to be quite interesting. Obviously, people living longer is a good thing, but supporting those people will cost more money. And that's also what's being reflected partly in, in rising government borrowing. So there's a combination of, I think, positives and headwinds here in terms of support aging populations. But again, I think technology will play an important role in uh, providing a balance. Let's talk about the decarbonization picture of this, because 
even with gas and oil prices having come down from their lows, this reliance on a fossil fuel economy and ecosystem just isn't sustainable for a number of reasons. How do you see that practically playing out in terms of you know, the global labor force and spend? You mentioned a rise in capital spending as also one of the, the proponents of what's going to define this era. How do those two come together? And what does that mean for investors? Well, as you say, I think, again, it's one of these structural shifts because in most rich economies, we haven't really spent a lot on physical infrastructure for two or three decades. Capital stock has been aging. A lot of investment where we've seen it has gone into the virtual world, into technology, not into the physical world. But in order to achieve decarbonization, which most governments now and countries have committed to legally over varying time horizons, we're actually going to have to spend a lot of money on rebuilding infrastructure. This is not something that can be resolved purely through technologies or apps on phones. We've actually got to build some stuff again. So I think the opportunity will be in some of the companies that are helping to roll out and build the infrastructure required to facilitate this transition to a greener economy. Uh, it, the, the challenge is the cost upfront of doing this. You know, estimates from the United Nations suggest that something like $100 trillion by the middle of this century will be required to really fulfill these requirements and sustainable development goals. So we're talking about huge amounts of money. But I think the goal, once we get to it, again, could be very exciting because uh, ultimately we could reach a point where the marginal cost of energy production is, is close to zero. And that could be a huge boost to growth. And I think a lot of jobs will be created as well along the way. What are the wild cards or is there a wild card out there as you look into this postmodern uh, cycle here that we're just maybe not uh, putting enough risk emphasis on or thinking much about what could, what's that black swan that we just don't know and it's hard to predict the black swan, but what could, right. what could change everything? Yeah, I mean, look, one of the challenges, as I mentioned, and these things do tend to go again through super cycles, is the increased demand on, on governments to become involved in economies. This started, of course, with the financial crisis and increased spending that governments had to employ in order to prevent a more serious downturn. But again, of course, we saw similar increased support coming through during the pandemic for very good reasons. Governments had to support labor markets and companies. We're seeing it again in, in Europe, given the shock from the Ukraine war and the rise in energy prices. But also as we move forwards in time in an era of greater geopolitical uncertainty, increases spending on defense, on aging populations and on funding pensions and, and older care, all of these things I think will push government borrowing up. And one of the implications of that may be higher long-term interest rates for governments. Now, I don't think this is going to reach a point where it becomes destabilizing, but I think it is, again, one of the big differences relative to what we've been seeing really in the last sort of 20 or 30 years, uh, particularly when we reach a point in around 2020 where interest rates really reached an all-time record low. And that's something I think we should really recognize is not likely to be uh, repeated. The easy money is behind us. All right, given all of this, Peter, and everything you've laid out, how should long-term investors think or rethink their traditional asset allocation strategies? This is part of what you have to do in your job. Yeah. What do you recommend? I think there are two or three things I would emphasize. One of them is diversification. 
you know, I do think we're moving into an era again where people need to think about diversifying across assets, even across geographies and styles. That wasn't very popular really in the last decade. You know, investors and equities didn't really need to diversify. It turned out really all they wanted was US equities and for that matter, US technology stocks, and that would have been just fine. But we're moving into an era where I think you're going to get lower aggregate returns with less contribution from falling interest rates, driving higher valuations. And that means investors need to sort of extend their time horizons and look at diversification, as I mentioned, geographically across assets and styles, but also look at more what we call alpha than beta, more differences between winning and losing companies rather than just uh, hoping that indexes will go up a lot on the back of lower interest rates. And one of the secrets to this, I think, is really looking at, at companies that can compound returns for investors over a longer period of time. And that can be either through fast-growing companies, perhaps, that are generating new products and services, new technologies that are reinvesting profits at a high rate and driving long-term profit growth. Or it could be in more mature industries where companies are generating decent cash flow and paying dividends, and those may compound over a, a period of time and generate good returns. So I think diversification, I think more focus on what we would call alpha differentiation, and also lengthening time horizons and looking at compounding returns rather than a quick rise in valuations should all be part of the way that people perhaps think about the implications of this postmodern cycle. You know Investopedia is a site built on our investing finance and economic terms. Here I am, one day we're going to have the Oppenheimer cycle, I'm pretty sure, but I got to know <laughs> what your favorite macroeconomic term is. Well, I'm not sure what the favorite term is, but one of the things I, I, I keep coming back to, and I think I mentioned it at the end there in terms of uh, what people should think about, is that the diversification is, is the closest thing you get to a free lunch in investment. You know, in other words, if you take a long enough view and you're diversifying the risk, you can often achieve decent compound returns. And I think that's a, a pretty good guide for investors who have got the patience to, to stick with it and uh, look at the longer term. Yep. Well, we love that term. One of our favorites here, Peter Oppenheimer, the chief equity global strategist and head of macro research at Goldman Sachs in Europe. The book, Any Happy Returns, Structural Changes and Super Cycles in Markets. Thanks so much for joining The Express. Thank you very much for having me. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from the Investopedia editorial team. That's right. Our fam is picking the term this week, and they like idiosyncratic risk. According to our very, very favorite website, idiosyncratic risk refers to the inherent factors that can negatively impact individual securities or a very specific group of assets. It's also known as specific or unsystematic risk, and certain securities will naturally have more idiosyncratic risk than others. Think about EV makers like Tesla. They have their own idiosyncratic risks as a sector because they're impacted by gas prices and consumer appetite, and individually, they have their own idiosyncratic risks as well. Tesla is a classic example given its founder and CEO. While no one challenges Elon Musk's brilliance, his particular brand of idiosyncratic behavior and all the other businesses he runs add another level of risk for Tesla investors. Idiosyncratic risk, to be exact, and keyman risk, another term we can apply to Tesla, which gives you a daily double.
We're going to let the Mac take us out this week. The original Macintosh computer, that is. The late, great Steve Jobs of Apple Computer unveiled the Mac around 40 years ago, and it changed the world forever. This is what the Mac had to say at its own unveiling. But today, for the first time ever, I'd like to let Macintosh speak for itself. Hello, I'm Macintosh. It sure is great to get out of that bag. And accustomed as I am to public speaking, I'd like to share with you a maxim I thought of the first time I made an IBM mainframe. Never trust a computer you can't with. Obviously I can talk, but right now I'd like to sit back and listen. So it is with considerable pride that I introduce a man who's been like a father to me, Steve Jobs. Talking computers, who would have thought? Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Peter Oppenheimer for joining The Express. We'll link to his research and his new book in the show notes, where you'll also find all the reports we cited on this week's episode. You'll also find a link to our latest investor sentiment survey. Given these record highs, we want to know how the smartest investors in the world are feeling these days. Are you bullish? Are you bearish? Are you cautious? Are you promiscuous? Are you just riding right along like we always do on the Investopedia Express? It takes just five minutes to take that survey, so please do, and we'll share the results with you next week, as always. Until then, keep the throttle down and the rails hot, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.